If you have a Bible with you, please take it and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. The Gospel of John, chapter 11. It's typically our practice here at Covenant to preach through books of the Bible, and for some time now we have been working our way through this wonderful portion of God's Word, the fourth Gospel, John. If you don't have a Bible but you'd like to follow along with us, you should find a Bible in the seat back in front of you and find your way to the fourth book of the New Testament, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 11. I will say I think we ran out of sermon guides that we provide each week. We ran out, um, which is a good thing. I mean, it's not a good thing to run out, but it's, uh, I mean, we... Uh, all of the overflow seating, everything was packed in the first service, and that's a good thing, isn't it? Uh, just means you just means you'll have no idea what I'm saying today because you don't have that guide. So, uh, but if you if if you like to have those guides, um, you can go to our website or go to the All About Sunday email. You can print that up. You can have that this week. It's all there. So John uh, chapter 11. Well, as we begin this chapter of John's Gospel, we cross a a, a rather significant thematic divide. The first ten chapters of John's Gospel comprise what we oftentimes call the Book of Signs, where Jesus' ministry is regularly connected to the various sacred festivals of Judaism, which became vehicles for us to understand in a deeper sense the person and the work of Jesus. And now, the rest of John's account will focus on the glory of Jesus as he demonstrates his mastery over sin and death. This is this second half of John's Gospel, oftentimes then referred to as the Book of Glory. It is the record of the final days of Jesus' life as he step-by-step makes his way back to Jerusalem and to his appointment with the cross. And here in chapter 11, we read of the most spectacular miracle of Jesus' ministry, A resurrection. His good friend Lazarus, brother to Mary and Martha. Jesus was very close to this family. He loved them. Lazarus takes ill and he dies. And by the time Jesus arrives at Bethany to be among the mourners, Lazarus has been dead for four days. But as the Lord of life, with complete authority over death, Jesus will raise his friend to life, giving us a glimpse of his own resurrection that will come. And not only that, but the resurrection that is in store for all of those who look for life and hope to Jesus Christ. Now today we're going to be considering Jesus' words and actions prior to that remarkable moment. So look there, John chapter 11, I want to read for you this morning, verses 1 through 16. And if you're able, I would ask you to please stand as I read this portion of God's holy, inspired, unerring, and life-giving word. Let's give it our full attention. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, 
Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews, that is the Jewish religious authorities, were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Now, Lord, we need your help so that we will understand your word, and we want to understand your word, Lord. We believe that by your Spirit it will come to us with clarity, that we will understand it, and that you will cause this word of yours to help us, to strengthen us, to correct us, to encourage us, to build our faith. Oh, God, do all of this and more, we ask, through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may have a seat. Let me ask you a question. What would it mean for your life if you were absolutely convinced, existentially convinced, metaphysically convinced, in every practical way, convinced intellectually, convinced experientially, uh, convinced emotionally, what would it mean to your life if you were that convinced of the goodness of Jesus, if in every way possible you had utter confidence that Jesus was dependably good, perfectly trustworthy in all things, what kind of impact would that have on your life? on the way you walk every day, on your attitude when you wake up in the morning? What impact would that have on you, on the things you meditate on, on the ways that you respond to sinful temptations? What impact would that have on you in the way you treat your spouse if you're married? Or the way you treat your parents? What impact would that have on you in the way you spend your time? The way you spend your money? What would that mean about the things that bring you joy? and the things that grieve your heart, if in every way possible you utterly believed that Jesus was good and trustworthy. Now, I don't assume everyone in this place is a Christian. I never make that assumption. Some of you know you're not Christians, and for any number of reasons, you just cannot seem to get to the place where you're willing to believe in Jesus. Or maybe you're not a Christian because there is a particular lifestyle that you want to pursue 
and you know that that particular lifestyle you want to pursue is not compatible with being a follower of Jesus, maybe that's why you're not a Christian. It may also be that some of you think that you're a Christian, not because you love the Lord or have a deep and abiding faith in Him, but because you think of yourself as a good person. Or because when you were six years old, you prayed a prayer. But for those of you who are truly trusting in Jesus, for those of you who, to use Jesus' words, are born again, you believe in Jesus, and you strive by all of His grace and all of His appointed means to follow Him. For you, knowing this, knowing that Jesus is good, knowing it unshakably, this should change everything. That Jesus, beyond all doubts and in all circumstances, is unalterably good and trustworthy. You can trust Him to save you. You can trust Him to lead you. You can trust Him to carry you when you can't take another step. You can trust that in all things He is in control and in all things He is orchestrating our good. You believe that. Often in life we are left dismayed, confused sometimes. We are left angry. We don't sometimes want to admit it, but angry with God because things have not gone the way we wanted them to go. Things did not happen the way we thought that God should engineer them. Or maybe we read a scripture and we we took a promise from that that wasn't really necessarily meant to be taken as a promise to us, but we, 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 we read it that way, we thought it that way, and we didn't get the outcome we wanted and we believe God failed us. We think of Mary and Martha here in Bethany, who even though Jesus was among their closest friends, they were among Jesus' closest friends, he was absent when they needed him most. And if we just examine the surface of their heartbreaking loss, we may conclude that Jesus somehow failed them if we didn't know better. But as John describes these events, he lifts our perspective to see something far deeper than the surface details can alight. We see that even in our deepest sorrows, Jesus is there. He is good. And he has it all under control. And this is not some academic exercise for me. This is not just merely an issue of theological speculation for me. Just like so many of you, I carry sorrows and losses that weigh on me from one degree or another every single day. At times, they weigh on me in such a way that I feel like my knees are going to give out. Circumstances out of which I have asked Why? I have pleaded for an answer. Circumstances to which Jesus is still saying, wait. And that's hard, isn't it? And this is 
This is how this particular passage we just read is so helpful. Because we hear in the words that Jesus speaks, we hear in the things that he did, and we even see in what might appear at the surface to be mundane details, all of it taken together, we see the unassailable, trustworthy goodness of Jesus. And that he has everything under control. So that when the sorrows come, and they will, when the shoe drops, when the calamity appears, and it will, we must remember some things in those moments. And we're given some things, some vital things to remember here. First of all, when the sorrow comes, when the tragedy strikes, when the despair breaks in, Remember the incarnation. Remember the incarnation. Doctrine, biblical doctrine, is enormously practical, beloved. God did not give us a thick book full of theology so that he would provide us with something that was more or less not that helpful. He gave us a book full of doctrine because when our soul is about to give way, it is the truth we need. It is the truth about who God is and what He is like and what He has done that we need so that we can say, when we walk safely through the valley of the shadow of death, we will be able to say, the truth came through for me. Yes, Jesus came through for me. God came through for me. But the doctrine he's taught me in his word came through for me. The french fries are ready, by the way. Um, It is clear from the account that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were especially close friends of Jesus. He would no doubt have spent time in their home, Um, He would have shared meals with them. They would have followed his ministry, probably even helping to support his ministry. The fact that a close friend and follower of Jesus has taken ill and now dies reminds us that in this life, God's people will suffer all of the calamities that are common to all people in a fallen world. We've said it before, it bears repeating You don't come to Jesus, pray a prayer, and then are suddenly hermetically sealed off from the sufferings of this life. It doesn't happen. Now, don't hurry past what is assumed in this passage. That Jesus is present in flesh and bone. That the Son of God is present in flesh and bone. He could laugh and weep and mean it all and feel it all. He felt physical pain. He knew the heartbreak and the devastation of deep loneliness at his most painful times. He knew what it was to be physically deprived. Jesus was like us and experienced the same sorts of sorrows we suffer. In his prologue, John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is the miracle and mystery of the Incarnation. That God became a man. 
you go through the Rolodex of all of the doctrines that are taught us in the Bible, and I don't think you can find a more mysterious, greater, more profound miracle than this, that God became one of us in the person of Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes that Jesus, though by very nature God, decided not to access all of the divine rights that were his, but instead took on the very nature of a servant, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. That is the incarnation. That is the power of the incarnation. The writer of Hebrews tells us that because God became a man, the person of Jesus Christ, he is now our sympathizing high priest, having experienced all that we experience except for sin. In all four of the gospel accounts, we see Jesus suffer physical pain and loneliness, betrayal and torture, and hear the death of a loved one. So God is not aware of or indifferent to our sorrows. Why? Because of the incarnation. And so when the sorrow comes, my friend, remember the incarnation. Remember that God has come near. This is a vast deep beyond our full comprehension. And yet this is not merely an idea It's it's not a doctrine that's trapped in a remote or esoteric religion. The incarnation means that God has come to us in the person of Christ. And because of that, he is compassionate beyond imagining. The incarnation is the direct opposite of indifference. The evolutionary biologist and rather excitable atheist, Richard Dawkins, has written this, quote, The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference, end quote. Now, don't you want to have lunch with him? By the way, he doesn't believe all of that. He doesn't know he doesn't believe it, but I know he doesn't believe it. Well, the universe is not a person. The universe does not possess consciousness. The universe is not made in the image of God. So it makes no sense to talk about whether or not the universe is indifferent or caring. It just doesn't make any sense to talk about it in that point, in that sense. But the point that Dawkins is trying to make is that there is no God. And because there is no God, we are all accidents in an endless sea of random indifference. There is no meaning, no good, no evil. Well, God the Creator, the God who was incarnate in human flesh, would beg to differ. And however unconscious or indifferent, if you want to use that language, are the stars and the planets and the quasars, I can assure you that Jesus, God with us, never has been and never will be indifferent to you. And if you'll allow me to use incarnational language, there is not an indifferent bone in Jesus' body. 
There's never been a man who cared more for you than Jesus cares for you. And the incarnation proves it. Remember the incarnation when you're tempted to doubt the goodness of Christ. Secondly, remember the cross. Remember the cross. Remember where John has us in the account of Jesus' life. From chapter 11 forward, the focus will be on his step-by-step journey back to Jerusalem, where he will go to the cross. And this is why the second half of John's Gospel is oftentimes called a a long passion narrative. Because it is. Everything happening here is leading to the cross. Every conversation has that, that, that's been had is being had under the, the shadow of the cross. We even have the disciples expressing grave concern about Jesus' return to Bethany, Bethany being less than two miles outside of, of Jerusalem. So Bethany is in Judea, which is where the religious authorities who want to kill him are. They're concerned that he would go back lest his life be taken from him. And then there's this little detail about Mary in verse 2. Do you see it there? It was Mary, John tells us, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now interestingly, this hasn't happened yet. John is referring to an event that is still yet to happen in terms of the order of events. He writes about it in chapter 12. But the story was so well known among the Christians by the time this gospel was committed to print that they already knew about that event. They already knew that story of how Mary came to Jesus, breaking open that perfume, pouring it out upon his feet. And John helps us to understand in chapter 12 when he actually narrates the event that what Mary was actually doing in that moment, although she probably did not understand the deep significance of it, God did. And what was actually happening in that moment, John tells us, is that that Mary was anointing his body for burial. Again, the cross is ever before us here. And we need this focus on the dying of Christ, not only because... It's the very means of our salvation, and that's enough. But, because the cross is also the greatest act of our Lord's compassion and care. Never before or since has there ever been an act of love and compassion that can equal, much less surpass, the cross. So when you are suffering, and when you are tempted to think that Christ does not love you, or that he is somehow indifferent towards you, remember the cross. When the waves of sorrow crash over your head, destroying your equilibrium and leaving you confused and disoriented, in that moment, beloved, remember the cross. The cross stands as the great and everlasting placard announcing that Jesus will never forget you. He will never neglect you. He will never abandon you. To Christians, the cross is the loud and clear announcement from Jesus declaring, I love you. I care for you. You can trust me completely. 
when you're tempted to think, I won't come through, when you're tempted to think what I'm doing is cruel, when you're tempted to think I'm withholding from you something that your soul requires, remember the cross. Remember the cross. Thirdly, remember Jesus' love. Remember Jesus' love. Now twice here, once in verse 3 and once in verse 5, we are told that Jesus loved this family. When Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick, their message to him was, the one you love is ill. Your brother, your, your close friend, he's ill. Word had already spread that Jesus was a healer. Many, 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 and probably Mary and Martha and Lazarus themselves had witnessed Jesus performing a healing miracle. And so they're pleading, get here quick. Before he dies, get here quick. We know you can heal. We've seen it. Everybody talks about it. You grant sight to the blind. Lame men leap. You feed the hungry miraculously. Get to Bethany before he dies. The one you love is sick. And then in verse 5, John writes, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. To which I say, of course he loved them. Jesus loved them because it is in his nature to love. And he didn't love them with some sort of, you know, love is a nice idea. He loved them. He knew them. He had been in their home. There was great and deep affection between them. The Lord's love here is very practical. It's not meant to be understood as some abstract principle, but as the real thing, as love. He loved them. Of course he did. We know elsewhere from John in his first epistle that God is love. God just doesn't just do loving things. God is love. God does loving things because he is love. He is holy. He is just. He is good. He is love. And that means, of course, that He loves you, Christian. And nothing, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8, nothing in all the world or in all of the heavens is able to separate you from the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. You know, there's all kinds of things that can separate us from the love of other people. If an offense is too great, if a violation of trust is too profound, maybe it's just distance and indifference and forgetfulness. But enough of that and our love fades for people. Imagine a relationship where nothing, not even death, can separate you from the love of your beloved. That is Jesus. Now look again at verse 4 because something interesting happens. Sandwiched in between verses 3 and 5, where we have those declarations of the love of Jesus for these three, we read this in verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, when he heard what? One of your best friends, Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Now pause there for a second, as we're going to see in just a minute. Jesus is not confused here. Lazarus is going to die, and Jesus knows it. But he's about to do something to death. 
that will forever change our relationship with dying. It will forever change the way God's people think of death. So he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then right after that, John tells us, Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And I think the reason why we have that sandwiched idea of God's commitment to his glory with the bread of love on either side of it, top and bottom, I think the reason why John gives us that is to help show us that God's commitment to the magnification of his glory is never ever at cross purposes with his commitment to love you. And in fact, in some ways we might even consider them two sides of the same coin. That it is profoundly loving to us when God magnifies his glory. God not only has the right to be glorified because he's the creator and the God of all things, but it is good for us, his creatures, when the creator is glorified. The prophet Isaiah In Isaiah 30, verse 18, said this, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Isn't that a great way to understand God's eagerness to be merciful to us? The Lord waits to be gracious to you, the prophet says, and therefore he exalts himself to show you mercy. Do you see the connection of those two ideas that the prophet gives us? God exalts himself. He glorifies himself to be merciful to you, to be compassionate to you, to love you. Isn't that wonderful? I want to suggest this. There's nothing more sure in the universe that God will be glorified. And he has connected His glory, the surest thing in the universe, to His love and mercy for you. God will no more stop loving you than He will give up His glory. Remember Jesus' love. It is not capricious. It is not flighty. It is perfect dependable, unbreakable. Fourth, remember your limits. This we need to remember about ourselves. When the sorrow comes, when the calamity strikes, remember your limits. We are earthbound, finite creatures. Right now, we can't see beyond the the confines of this room. We have some high-set windows out of which we can see some sky. And some light comes in. But beyond that, nothing else we can see right now beyond this room. Well, it's a little bit like our knowledge of God's dealings in his creation. There's only so much we can see. 
Now, God in his grace, by his word and through nature, has helped us to see a lot of things. And there's a lot of things we can know. Oh, beloved, there is so much we don't know, though. There is so much we don't see. For all of the things that we can know, we don't even know what's going to happen ten minutes from now. I might still be preaching. But we don't know. I don't know. There are profound limits upon what we can see and understand. And that is no more apparent than when we read verse 6. Do you see verse 6? So, you need to underline, highlight, circle that so, because this is going to serve you well. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. The Greek word translated so is un. Upsilon, nu, un. You know what it means? So. I'm not being glib here. The NIV totally gets this wrong. The NIV says, yet therefore. It's wrong. It does not mean yet. It does not mean but. The Latin translation, the Vulgate gets it right. It renders that word ergo. Un and ergo, they mean the same thing. They are adverbs indicating purpose. And so follow the logic. Verse 5, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Verse 6, un, ergo. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he didn't go to him. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. The implication is clear, but it's disorienting, isn't it? Jesus delays in coming to Bethany, and it's motivated by his love for them. And of course, we want to stop, left to ourselves, if we're, if we're going to not try to behave like really, really super righteous people who never struggle with any of this. Really, in our heart of hearts, we're going, no, that's not the way it's supposed to work. We want to take verse 6 and take that so out of there, and we want to replace it with, but he did something that seems to contradict his love. He loved them, but... And the Word won't let us. Instead, we're told that Jesus delayed His going to Bethany because He loved them. Christ waited for those two days precisely because so, because He loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. He brought them into grief precisely because that grief would be a means of bringing them into a deeper, better thing. It would give them a stronger, more resilient, enduring faith which is of greater worth than gold. For them to have been relieved immediately would not have been a bad thing. It's just that Jesus had something that was better. 1 Peter chapter 1, 
verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, not, and God's as confused as this as you are. I mean, he's, he's, he's as dismayed as you are. He has no idea why you're being grieved by various trials. No. You've been grieved by various trials so that, that's purpose, so that God is at work, God is designing, God is plotting, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Every shiny trinket that the world waves in our faces pales in comparison to a tested faith. Hmm. Do we believe it? Had Jesus gone and healed his friend Lazarus immediately, the disciples would have been glad. Mary and Martha would have been thrilled, not inappropriately. All of Bethany would have had a party and they would have rejoiced and people would have said, once again, Jesus the healer. But in verses 14 and 15, the disciples are dismayed that Jesus did not take off immediately to Bethany to be with his friend, to heal his friend, when he had the power to do so. But do you see how Jesus answers them in verse 15? Lazarus is dead. You're not understanding my euphemism about sleep, so let me just say it to you plain. Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Jesus knows that these men are going to go to their death for him. He knows it. He knows what they are going to be facing as the church of Jesus Christ is built upon them in their ministry and their preaching. He knows it. He knows what's in store for them. And he knows that what they need is a faith that is proved in the fire. And so he gives them what they need. Beloved, do you believe that Jesus is trustworthy? Do you believe that he knows what he's doing? J.C. Ryle, commenting on this very passage, wrote this, Even the delays and long intervals which puzzle us in God's dealings are wisely ordered and are working for good. Like children, we are poor judges of half-finished work. To judge God's work without remembering our limits will lead us into error and worse. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Remember your limits. Fifthly, and we're going to move quickly now, remember the most important thing. Remember the most important thing. Now, Jesus' disciples are torn. On the one hand, they expect him to rush to Lazarus in Bethany and heal him. On the other hand, they're scared because if he gets that close to Jerusalem, uh, will the authorities snatch him up? And this time, will they be able to kill him? 
And so you see how Jesus responds to their fears in verses 9 and 10. And at first it seems very cryptic what Jesus is saying. In fact, at first Blanche, it's hard to quite follow, it's hard to really follow with him. Do you see what he says? Verse 9, are there not 12 hours in a day? In other words, a 24-hour time period can be roughly divided, about half of it's in the light, half of it's in the night. Are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. Now, right there, Jesus is making a very simple point. You typically don't treat, you typically don't trip up in broad daylight because you can see what's in front of you. But if anyone walks in the night, and here Jesus begins to shift the metaphor. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. You see how he shifts it very subtly there. He's not just talking about the light from the world, the light we gain from the sun. Now he's talked about a light that is absent from within a person. And in that sense, he's drawing upon so many of the things he's already taught. What's one of Jesus' I am statements? I am the light of the world. In the prologue, John declares that Jesus is the light. He even differentiates and reminds them that John the Baptist wasn't the light, but he came to give testimony to the light. It's Jesus who gives light, and him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is borrowing on all of that now. And what he's coming to is he's saying this, look, you guys are afraid of so many things. You're afraid of what will happen if I don't go to Bethany and heal Lazarus. And at the same time, you're afraid about me going to Bethany of what might happen then. Listen, let me make it very simple for you guys. The people all around this world walk in darkness because they do not have the light. And that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. And that's why I'm going to delay for Lazarus and I'm going to let him die because I need to teach something. I need to proclaim something about what I'm going to do to death. And it's why I'm going to go to Bethany and it's why this time I won't escape. This time they will lay their hands on me. This time they will put me to grief. Because they are filled with darkness and they need the light. This is the most important thing. And let us remember that. That when it comes to our sorrows and our pain and our griefs, it's not wrong to pray for healing. It's not wrong to pray for the cessation of that despair. Please don't ever hear me say that. If you're sick, we're going to pray for you. If you're despairing, we're going to pray for you. But listen, sometimes God says no because there's something better. And in the moment that he says no or wait, remember this, that there is something better than your immediate relief. As good as an immediate relief would be. Some of you are saying, Todd, I'm not asking for an immediate relief. I've had this for 15 years. I understand. I understand. I understand what it is to have a chronic source of sorrow. I understand. And it's in that time when I have to realize that better than the relief now is the knowledge that my sins have been forgiven. And if you are a Christian, you have been rescued. You have been justified before God. You are at this very moment an object of His sanctifying grace. And when you And I, and the vast company of all of the redeemed from all over the world, from throughout the ages, finally shake off these mortal coils. 
Our mortality will put on immortality. And our corruption will put on incorruptibility. And we'll realize that that's the best thing. So remember, when God says no, or when he says wait, remember he's already done the most important thing. Finally, remember Jesus' authority over life and death. The whole of chapter 11 revolves around the authority of Jesus, his absolute mastery over life and death. Do you see how he describes death in verse 11? That Lazarus' illness will not lead to death. Now we know from everything else in this section that Lazarus, or, or, that, that, that Jesus knows that Lazarus is going to die and he intentionally refuses to heal him so that he will die. So that he can do the greater work of resurrection. But Jesus uses the euphemism for sleep. He is sleeping. Because he's going to transform death. The enemy that everyone fears and no one can do anything about, he's going to transform it into a nap for his people. Or what about his shocking words in verse 15? I'm glad that I wasn't there for your sake. Now if I said that, that'd be pretty sketchy. But those words come from the mouth of our Lord, whose mastery extends to life and death. He has stripped the grave of its power and death has been reduced to a defanged serpent. Now do you see Thomas, his response? Yes, that Thomas. Let us also go. Let's, also, let, let's follow him right back into Judea that we may die with him. Now that sounds a little pessimistic. And perhaps it is. After all, Thomas and the rest of the disciples still have a lot to learn. But at this point, at least, Thomas might maybe understand that following Jesus is tough. It's sacrificial. It For us, not for Jesus, but for us, involves the unknown at times. And maybe we're seeing a bit of the man there who would one day be the first one to take the gospel to India which Thomas did. Hmm. The follower of Jesus can walk in peace through the valley of death's shadow. The one who loves us enough to lay down his life for our salvation is the same one who holds complete power over death. And this one who holds that power also loves you. He loved you all the way to the cross. He loved you enough to leave his throne and be humiliated to the point of a criminal's death. That's how much he loves you. That's how good he is. That's how trustworthy he is. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Um, I want to read you something real quick. I'm not going to read the whole book. Um, this book is entitled, Therefore I Have Hope. It was written by a youth and children's pastor in Birmingham, Alabama, named Cameron Cole. And in it, he writes out of a place of deep sorrow and grief the death of his three-year-old son, Cam. He was out of town when the unthinkable happened. 
His wife called him, and she delivered the worst news, three words, Cam is dead. Listen to this. The first half of my dreadful daydreams had become a reality. I had imagined this moment hundreds of times. Here was the point of departure between God and me. Here was that moment when my faith would crumble. In my imagination of doom, here was when I would curse God, resign from ministry, and pursue a life of self-interest as a bitter, faithless man. But the Lord put a word in my mouth that surprised me. When Lauren delivered the tragic news, I said to her, Lauren, Christ is risen from the dead. God is good. This doesn't change that. God gave me faith and hope while I, stir- while I stood squarely in the middle of my worst Throughout the journey of my worst nightmare, my descent into a dark, sad valley, the Holy Spirit would remind me of truths that comforted my soul and sustained my life. Very often in the month after Cam died, I would say to my wife or a friend that I could not conceive how anyone could survive such pain if they did not believe certain biblical truths. How could a person survive if one did not know the gospel? How could one subsist if one did not accept the sovereignty of God? How would one function if one did not know the possibility of joy in suffering? How could one move forward without the hope of heaven? The gospel is not only an evangelistic principle. It is a message that gets gets you out of bed in the morning. The sovereignty of God is not some debatable proposition. It is the assurance that your child's death is not a meaningless accident. Grace is not simply a word in a hymn. It is the very thing you rely on when you are so bereaved that you cannot imagine living another day. Faith is not just a cliche term for religion. It is the thing that picks you up off the carpet when you have been crying for over an hour. My intent is that God's word will offer you the most essential thing you need in the face of your worst. And that is hope. Hope is difficult to define until you're starving for it. I can think of no better word to describe what should be our experience if we really believe in the unbreakable trustworthy goodness of Jesus. And that word is hope. Hope. His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Now, our Father and our God, we ask your help so that your word would not depart from us but would remain in our hearts, that it would take root and produce fruit for your glory and our joy. 
And this we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.